0: Welcome to another episode of Chart of Fortune, the astrology podcast where I look at the birth charts of the moments and things that made pop culture. I'm your host, Elise Blaylock, and I can't actually start this week's episode and not kind of explain the origin story of this podcast. I promise you it will be quick and it totally relates back. But first, I need you to come with me to 2018. I'm working as an admin at a now defunct firm, and I'm really starting to get into astrology. Like, I've known I was a Gemini most of my life, and I had gotten obsessed with my Saturn return, which started at the end of 2017. My Saturn and Capricorn friends, you know what I'm talking about. Like many, a basic astrology bitch, I graduated from learning to knowing that I was a Gemini sun to learning that I had a whole freaking birth chart and that I had a Virgo moon and a Libra rising and all sorts of other placements just like you do. And like every good basic astrology bitch, maybe you were like me and you start wondering if people you know have the same placements as you. Or maybe if you're really like me, you start wondering, like, for the pop culture obsessive, are there any famous celebrities that have my placements? I mean, our placements? And it was right around this time that I found out that John F. Kennedy and I had the same big three placements. He is also a Gemini Sun, Virgo Moon, Libra Rising. And just to be clear here, I share a Sun and Rising with Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, and I also share a Sun and Moon with Marquis de So like, you have to imagine that me seeing JFK pop up on the internet gave me a certain like sense of relief, because prior to that, it was literally just Anne Haish and Jeffrey Dahmer and the Marquis de And Look, I get, like, these people are all very well-known for their own things, but not exactly the kind of crew you want to be rolling with, if if you know what I mean. So, yes, I get it. Dead old white guy. But dead old white guy who was progressive and also wasn't Jeffrey Dahmer. It's a win. But since I found that out about JFK, that we share the big three, it's always felt like it's kind of a weird person to share that big three with. Um, you know, he's like not the most fun person. Like imagine if you had like Reese Witherspoon or I don't know, Oprah or something, people would be like, oh, I know who that is. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. They're so fun. They'd have like a fun anecdote, but JFK doesn't really have that situation. And frankly, he and I don't have a lot in common. He is from a crazy prominent political family and they're all Democrats. That was not my experience. Uh, he is a philanderer, he's had a ton of health issues, and, you know, he's like one of the most beloved presidents we've ever had in America. Like me, none of those apply, okay? Um, I've been in love with the same person since I was 18, I don't get sick a lot, um, although I did get shingles once, so maybe that's what connects us. And the only thing I've ever been president of was my sixth grade class. And- Knowing that I could have the same big three as someone, but be completely different people from completely different moments in American history, made me want to know more about astrology because I wanted to know how two different people could have all of these similar placements and not be the same. Like, what would make us the same? What would make us different? How do you find it in a birth chart? Should I never go to Dallas, Texas? Spoiler alert on this episode, I guess. And can I tell you that I applied to a college and was waitlisted by a college in Dallas. So maybe the universe was like, girl, no, you're in danger. Don't go there. You won't like it. They have a lot, a lot of peroxide blonde. And you'll do that later, but you don't need, you can't afford that in college. Anyway, and around this time in 2018 where I'm like trying to figure out this JFK stuff, a coworker at this previous job who is truly a gem, like an absolutely lovely person, totally caught me in my car listening to an episode of an astrology podcast and I was singing along to the theme song I was bopping it was a Friday it was sunny and wonderful and she casually dropped it in uh, the next week at the office and mentioned that she was like whatever you were doing in your car you looked so happy you you looked like you were just like in the moment and I totally was I was doing that thing where you're just immersed in something that just brings you joy. I was listening to a show talk about something, astrology, that I deeply love and wanted to learn more about, and it just taken a hold of me. I was just completely unaware of the fact that I, you know, was like driving home from a job that I didn't really love and had struggled with and was kind of in a weird place in my life. And what I'm saying right now in a really obtuse, weird way is that JFK is kind of technically part of the reason this podcast exists. So... Right now, a hearty thank you to JFK, Big Three Twin. I had no idea what would happen in my life, just like he did. Um, obviously, for me, it's, it's worked out a little better, maybe so far. Um, you know, in 2018, when I was listening to that podcast in my car and thinking about JFK randomly, I had no idea, you know, that I would switch jobs to a different job, or I would get walking pneumonia, or I would live through a pandemic, or I would move. I just hoped that in that moment and for a while that someday, somehow, I would figure out a way to learn more about astrology and then figure out how to talk about that passion in a way that made me feel really good and maybe someone else would enjoy as well. And now I'm on my 36th episode, which isn't a lot, um, and I have over 900 listens, and that isn't a lot, but it's a lot for me, and I have listeners in 19 countries, and I I'm so grateful in this moment, astrology or otherwise, that this has happened in my life and it's gotten this far. And so before we get into the tragedy of the Kennedys, the eighth house, the Virgo placements, the whole, uh, you know, sadness, curse of it all. I just want to say that I am so thankful that you are listening to this wherever you are listening to it right now. Um, You're giving me all that late 2018 bopping in my car vibes. So back to our story We're talking about the Kennedys, and it feels really relevant to me because today I'm recording. It's Tuesday the 27th. This will come out on the 28th, and we just started the Pluto retrograde. So Pluto is retrograde in sign of Capricorn, and It just feels like there's some energy around it. Like a lot of people say, oh, don't pay attention to retrogrades of outer planets. But if you have any cardinal signs in your chart, so Cancer, Capricorn, Aries, Libra, if you have, um, if you're an elder millennial and you have that Capricorn stellium, I don't know about you, I'm really feeling it. And I feel like Pluto being this, uh, you know, planet of, power and destruction and Jessica Lignato who's a fabulous astrologer was talking about how Pluto can only destroy and rebuild what's worth keeping so it just doesn't destroy and rebuild structures that we don't need and I think in Capricorn it's a lot about structure and power and systems that we have in place and it's gonna last through early October I think October 6th so keep it on your radar and I think it totally ties into what we're doing today. So we ended last episode talking about JFK's sister, Rosemary Kennedy. Uh, She had a tragic lobotomy surgery and then a really tragic life of institution and being, um, you know, really separated from her family in a really sad way. So we're picking up on this story uh, it's in the early 1950s post war. As an additional reminder, I'm going to reference the marriage chart we talked about in the first episode that is the marriage chart of Joseph Kennedy Jr. and Rosemary Fitzgerald Kennedy. And they got married on October 7, 1914. And they are the parents of all the Kennedys that we talk about and that you know. So that's uh, JFK, it's RFK, it's Ted Kennedy. Um, so those are the people whose parents are, were married. That's the chart that we're using. Um, and those are the Kennedys we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to refer to that chart back again, but just the, the top notes of it, the chart is a Virgo rising Libra sun, Taurus moon. Um, we talked about the fact, I'm sorry, it is a Scorpio rising chart. Um, Libra sun, Taurus moon, The Midheaven is actually in Virgo. And and this marriage chart has Venus and Scorpio, and that placement is almost exactly conjunct to that rising. Um, And that gives it a really jam-packed eighth house. Um, We'll kind of reference some of those planets in a moment. So what has happened in our last episode, as a brief refresher, it's been two weeks. Uh, Joseph Kennedy Jr., he's the oldest Kennedy child and the oldest Kennedy son. He dies tragically in a plane crash during a really... Uh, top secret, very dangerous mission on World War II. And so this causes the family to kind of shift their political presidential aspirations from their eldest son, uh, Joseph Kennedy Jr., to John F. Kennedy. You might have heard of him. Yeah, JFK for the True Heads. And so this means that the focus and intensity and pressure and then also life trajectory of JFK is kind of shifting. He's going to start working in politics. He becomes a U.S. representative for Massachusetts. Uh, He then decides to run against a member of another well-known American political family, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., uh, for a Senate seat in Massachusetts, and he wins. This is in no small part because he's young and dynamic. Um, Henry Cabot Lodge was not a super strong campaigner, and also that his family, you know, sets up many a fundraising event, and they contribute a lot of personal donations, uh, finances, to this election. So when JFK takes office, it is 1953, he's in his mid-30s, things are looking up for him. I mean, in our last episode, he was, you know, having canoodling sessions with someone who's likely a German spy and, you know, being a military disgrace to his dad. So things are things are looking a little better for, for John. But his parents, like any good parents, they are not convinced that john has done enough you know overcoming um addison's well living with addison's in a more effective way but like any any good overachieving parents they think you still need to be president of the united states that's your destiny and there is a glaring issue in this plan that they have devised because in the 1950s america there is simply no way that they're going to elect an unmarried man they want to elect A man who's married and maybe has a couple of kids. But right now, JFK is enjoying his life as a mostly single guy. He's meeting lots of ladies. He's dating around. But his parents kind of put a kibosh on that for the time being and say, You need to settle down and you need to get married if you're going to be president. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we want? I mean, you want? You want. That's what you want, John. This leads me to the first significant date of the episode, and that is the marriage of John F. Kennedy and Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy. I know you've been waiting. Jackie is a Leo's son. She's a Scorpio rising. She is an Aries moon. So you'll note right away, Scorpio rising means that she has the exact same house rulers as that marriage chart of John F. Kennedy's parents, which is kind of interesting. So it almost seems to suggest that Jackie maybe is very, uh, you know, some similarities to the Kennedy family, she kind of fits in. Um, when we say rising in house charts, it doesn't mean that all of her planets are going to be in the same place as theirs, right? Because 1914 and then when Jackie was born, there's some time differences there. It's just saying that when you're a rising sign, it means that all the signs are in the same order. So she's a Scorpio rising, which means the next sign is going to be Sagittarius. And that would be true of the other chart, the marriage chart as well. Jackie's also an Aries moon. We love to see it. She and JFK actually both have a shared chart placement. They both have their natal Venus in Gemini. And I think this really does kind of speak to their love story. I believe that they cared about each other on some level. I don't think it was a a great romance in that way. But I, I think that their partner's intelligence or, you know, their capabilities, the way they spoke, was really appealing to one another. Uh, Jackie spoke basically fluent French, she was a journalist, she was incredibly sophisticated and smart, and I think all of those qualities um, really endeared her to John. I think he really appreciated how um, intelligent and, you know, aware of the world and well-traveled Jackie was, Uh, and I think that Jackie really saw the Gemini energy in John. You know, she found him funny, um, another Venus and Gemini trait, and also I think there's a certain... Some Gemini sons, not all because Donald Trump is a Gemini son. so here we are. But a lot of Geminis will have kind of this great charm or public presence that can kind of draw people in. And I think Venus and Gemini really appreciates that kind of Gemini playfulness and charm. Um, and I think that really attracted uh, them to one another. Their wedding was perhaps unsurprisingly in Virgo season. They were married on September 12th, 1953 at 11 a.m. in Newport, Rhode Island. So just like the wedding chart of his parents, this wedding chart also has a Scorpio rising. Um, So lots of Scorpio energy, meaning that that Virgo sun that we talked about because we know it's Virgo season, it's in the 11th house of community and our larger social circle. This chart, this new marriage chart, not the original one, but um, John and Jackie's wedding chart has the sun at 19 degrees of Virgo, and that is very close to Joseph Kennedy's natal Virgo sun, which is in 14 degrees. And this, you know, closeness in the Virgo season, the Scorpio rising, all of this is really pointing to Joseph Kennedy's role in this wedding, Of course, he did not get married that day, but it's really integral to know that the guest list was mostly people he wanted to invite, the people he thought were important and influential, the kind of people he thought should attend this social, you know, gathering of the year. I mean, maybe you're cynical and you think he wants them to give them really nice gifts. But I think more likely it's that he wants to invite certain people that are prestigious or well-connected so that they will have this connection to the Kennedys, um, you know, and their persona as this well-kept, like, all-American happy family, and that they'd also want to contribute to any future campaigns. This will blow your mind when you know who Jackie O is. Jackie O did not pick her wedding gown. That was a recent surprise to me. I'm sure the true heads knew. Sorry to have gotten here a little late. But her father-in-law picked her wedding gown. And to be clear, she did not like it. She thought it made her look like a cream puff. She thought it was too over the top. Um, If you've seen the dress, it's actually really pretty. It's like a v-neck and it's slightly off shoulder. And I think that part was less disagreeable. But the skirt is very large and has these interesting like little squares of fabric on it that make it look like uh, kind of like a mosaic tiling. And it has like semi like circles that kind of look more... It's not even Spanish, but it looks like mosaic tiling and it's all like creamy satin. So it's kind of an interesting like silk satin finish. She did not enjoy it. She, you know, had been to Paris recently and had kind of been looking at wedding gowns and what she ended up wearing was nowhere near what she had hoped to wear. And she thought it wasn't very flattering, which is funny because, of course, Jackie O is known for being this, you know, wonderful you know, fashion inspiration and kind of changes the first lady's role into this woman who is um, really relatable in some ways, but also this really, you know, um, enviable, admirable fashion icon. Um, There's also a really good, when I was researching this, but did not include it because I didn't use it, uh, end up using the information. But just so you know, Vogue.com has a really interesting article about Jackie's wedding gown designer and at the time um this is a woman a black woman who had her own atelier and was an American designer and at first Jackie was a little sad that she didn't get to have like a French couture house make her gown um which you know seemed like an indulgence but it's a really interesting story of this woman who you know in the improbable 50s and 60s really makes a name for herself as an American fashion house and it was super interesting so if that interests you if you Google. Jackie Kennedy wedding gown designer it should come right up um, and it's a pretty quick read. it was really interesting to me. But the wedding chart um, back to that. So when Jackie and John got married, there is Jupiter in Gemini is showing up in this chart and that actually is the same placement that Jackie has in her natal placement. So the wedding chart has Jupiter in 23 degrees of Gemini and Jackie has this placement in nine degrees of Gemini. So it's not a super strong conjunction. We have a really big orb there. But I did mention it because I think it's important to talk about why that could be significant, even if it's not a really strong orb, um, even if it's kind of too too many degrees apart to seem like it's an exact. But Jupiter is the planet of higher aspirations and expansion. And I think this is really suggesting that this marriage and relationship is a huge change for Jackie, and it's going to change her life in really incredible ways that I don't know that she could ever fully understand what happened. Um, she, at this day, is less than a decade away from being the First Lady of the United States. Um, she's going to have children with JFK, so she'll shift from being just, um, you know, a wife into a mother and and then being a First Lady, and then following JFK's death, of course, being in this really uh, difficult to navigate the situation of being a widow and being in the public eye. Um, so that Jupiter placement to me was really like, oh, in this Gemini, which is also John's sun sign, that there's this connection of like, oh, this is a person who is going to expand to different portions of your life. Skipping ahead a little bit, we're going to skip the campaign, but JFK is elected president on November 8th, 1960. I know what you're thinking. It is not Virgo season. And you are right. Election season is always in Scorpio season for uh in America, so the presidential election and election day is always the first Tuesday in November, so it's in Scorpio season always. But another Kennedy signature, because like they get a million, I guess, is that when we have aspects being formed to the original wedding chart, and in this case, we're in Scorpio season, so this Scorpio season is lighting up that first house because again the original wedding chart of Joseph and Rosemary has a Scorpio ascendant. So the first house is being like illuminated at this time. On election day 1960, the sun was in 29 degrees of Scorpio and it is exactly conjunct the original wedding chart Scorpio ascendant in 29 degrees as well. And maybe this seems really obvious to you because the birth chart is a circle, but this feels like a full circle moment, right? We've come back the exact degree and sign of the first chart. Now to be clear because we're talking about the sun being in Scorpio every year the sun goes into 29 degrees of Scorpio so that is not unique but the fact that it happened on election day for JFK and it's the exact same rising as his parents wedding chart feels very momentous to me. We've come back to the exact degree and the exact sign of the very first Kennedy connection right like where his parents Got married. This is where the Kennedy family comes from. This is a story that is now fully realized, like we've made one full loop around the circle 46 years after it began. You know, it starts with two people kind of falling in love, I suppose, um, and then dreaming that one of their children will be president. Okay, one of their male children, let's not forget where we are in history, would be president. And now JFK is a really young president, and he is the first Catholic president of the United States. And if this were any other family in America, maybe the story would wind down here. But it's not. And I I think that you know uh, where we're going with this. And you know that this moment is not the end of some sweet fairy tale of the American dream and the story of hardworking immigrants and striving to help their children reach the highest office in the land. No, this full circle is again... Starting over, and it's beginning another dark chapter in Kennedy history. And I think if you know anything about the Kennedys, you probably know what I'm going to talk about next. And that is that John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas, Texas. On this day, the sun was forming a conjunction to the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in the eighth house of the original Kennedy marriage chart. And the sun on this day was exactly conjunct that Scorpio ascendant of the original marriage chart. And this to me is that Saturn, Pluto, I don't think I need to tell you Saturn, the planet of delays and setbacks and isolation and Pluto, which is about um, rebuilding and death. And that being in the eighth house and kind of meeting up with the sun in Scorpio here is really intense. The sun being our life force and then it being, you know, pushed up against Saturn and Pluto who are these kind of dark... I think of them as cold planets. Like I think of the sun as the sun it is warm, right? It's bright. And then we have Saturn, which is is viewed as cold, right? It's, you know, got these icy rings and Pluto, which is, you know, now a, a, a dwarf planet, but a, for our purposes is a planet. Um, and, you know, it's out there in the galaxy. It doesn't see a lot of light. And the fact that it's in this eighth house, which is about legacy and death it feels very very heavy also we need to talk about the fact that pluto hi pluto it's come up a lot um we're having that pluto return i talked or the pluto retrograde and now pluto in 1963 was conjunct it was in virgo and it's conjunct the marriage charts midheaven in virgo we talk about the midheaven as a place of public destiny you know we talk about um it being like an idea of career or some kind of path, some kind of legacy that we have, um, some kind of calling or vocation. And I think that Pluto conjunct here is a really big conversation about death and destruction, right? The Midheaven is the highest point in any chart. It's on the top of the circle. If you are looking at the circle and it's your birth chart, your rising sign is going to be the, di- you know, the Yeah, the diameter, that long line across the middle, it's going to be on the left-hand side. That's the start of your chart. But your midheaven is going to be right at the very top. So like top, middle. It's the highest point in our chart. It's the most visible place. If you use whole signs, it's typically the 10th house ruler. And that's because there are themes of public image and persona and the work that we're meant to do in those arenas. And I think that this... Pluto placement is perhaps to me the most significant because this death is unlike the previous Kennedy tragedies because it happens on such a public scale. Obviously, any loss is tragic and upsetting, but on this day, the Kennedy family lost a brother, child, husband, father, but the country lost a president. And that darkness and that Pluto-like destruction energy feels so powerful that it's sitting on top of the chart and that we know that this is a death that really changes the trajectory not only of this family, but also in a way the trajectory of our country. Uh, It's here that I want to take a brief ridiculous tangent brought to you by non-astrological nonsense, and that is the Tippecanoe Curse. This has an origin story from Ripley's Believe It or Not, so that's... um. Let's go with legit. Yeah, let's say legit. It's not. Okay. There are some people that this curse, believe that this curse, because they don't know about astrology, they're not here for it, whatever, We, we can't save them all, but they believe that this curse is really the responsibility for JFK's death, okay? The curse of Tippecanoe is the idea that every president elected in a year that ends in zero, so every like 20 years, will die in office and or they will die a terrible death. Now, the origin of this curse is believed to be the result of Shawnee leaders, so uh, Native peoples, after they lost the Battle of Tippecanoe. Now, William Henry Harrison was the the term they use is governor but basically they had invaded land of native peoples which is the story of america unfortunately and he was the governor of this area meant that he was directly responsible for managing this conflict and fighting with the um shawnee people and you know like kind of repressing their military efforts and so as a result it's believed that the shawnee leaders decided to curse him. And so later, William Henry Harrison is elected to the United States presidency in 1940, but he will die in 1941. And I'm pretty sure that basically what happened is Inauguration Day was very cold and in typical dude energy, he was like, I don't need a jacket. I'm William Henry Harrison. And then he got pneumonia and he died. But there are people who, you know, say... Mm, that could be but he was cursed so we actually have more proof that it wasn't just him being a dillweed okay this curse does include because it starts in 1840 so we start counting then it would include Abraham Lincoln James Garfield and William McKinley who were all elected in 1860 Abraham Lincoln 1880 James Garfield William McKinley was 1900 and they were all assassinated while in office Additionally, the curse cites that Warren G. Harding, who was elected in 1920, and FDR, who was elected in 1940, suffered health issues and died in office. Now, both of those are true. FDR had an aneurysm, um, and I believe Warren G. Harding had some kind of heart issue, and that caused them, while they were in the presidency, to die while in office. But the assassination of, after the assassination of JFK, no president has died in office since 1963. So you can do the math. There's a long time between 1940 and 2020 and a bunch of those years and zeros. So shouldn't there be more dead people? Yes. Okay. You might remember if you are old or you just happen to, you know, have seen the news that Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush both had assassination attempts and both survived This theory could make sense, but another thing that doesn't fit into this pattern is the fact that Zachary Taylor was elected in 1848 and he died in office, but he wasn't in one of those years that ends in a zero where it would fit this curse. It also doesn't account for any other assassination attempts on other presidents in years that don't end in zero, um, their election year that ends in zero. And finally, there has never been any evidence Put forth by any credible researcher um, or someone who is an anthropologist or is respectful of native cultures that the Shawnee people were actively practicing curses or using similar, like folk magic or anything like that. And while the idea that every year, 20 something years, something bad happens. It could be that this is kind of a racist theory and that those people don't know that there's a little thing called the Saturn-Pluto conjunction that also tends to take place every 20 years and that tends to result in a lot of death of powerful people. So I'll leave you with that thought. And while we are down the random connection of rabbit hole Wikipedia conspiracy land, we got to talk about the weird connection between Abraham Lincoln and JFK. The following is something I've heard referenced previously but it's pretty trippy and I actually think it's more interesting than the Katipika curse. So our friends at Wikipedia slash me have compiled the following spooky coincidences for you to consider. Now both the last name Lincoln and the last name Kennedy are comprised of seven letters. Yeah okay both presidents are were elected to Congress in the year that is 46 and then later to the presidency in 60. So 1846 and 1860 for Abraham Lincoln and 1946 and 1960 for John F. Kennedy. Both presidents lost a son while living in the White House. Both presidents were shot in the presence of their wives. Both John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald were born in years that end in 39, and they were known by three names composed of 15 letters. Now, true crime head aside here, known by three names, this is a little murky because the tradition in law enforcement and true crime is that we always identify killers by three names as to not cause confusion. The, fi- the 15 letters is, is slightly interesting. This is... John Wilkes Booth ran from Ford's Theater and was caught in a warehouse. Lee Harvey Oswald ran from the Dealey Plaza warehouse and was caught in a theater. Both John F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln were runners-up for their party's nomination for vice president in a year that ended in '56. Both presidents were shot in the head on a Friday. Lincoln was shot at Ford's Theater. Kennedy was shot in a Ford car, which was a Lincoln limousine. This one I have heard touted the most— Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy who told him not to go to Ford's Theater, and Kennedy had a secretary named Evelyn Lincoln, whose husband Harold's nickname was Abe, and she warned him not to go to Dallas. Both Oswald and Booth were assassinated before they could put on trial, and both successors to Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy were Southern Democrats who had the last name Johnson, both of which of them were born in the year that ended in 08, and both of their first names, Contained six letters. So for Abraham Lincoln, it's Andrew Johnson, who got impeached twice and is like the colonial version of Donald Trump. And for Kennedy, we have Lyndon Johnson, LBJ. So that's who they're referencing there. And while we're on the topic of LBJ, we are going to get back to the Kennedy curse, but obviously he's involved because the next thing I have to tell you about is, of course, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And this happens on June 5th, 1968 in Los Angeles, California. It happens right around midnight. So it's just right after he's given a speech on the 4th into the 5th at a hotel. Now, it's important to understand why RFK was even in California. He's not from there, does not live there in Los Angeles of all places, and why he was giving a speech. He is in the middle of running for president. Um, This was a controversial Choice at the time, it was and it wasn't. I'll just unpack it. I think you'll get that. There's like a lot going on here, but basically, you know this: John F. Kennedy, he is assassinated, and when that happens in the United States, the vice president becomes the president. Um, that's just how we do that here. It's it's in the Constitution. So. Lyndon Johnson is the president at the time, and Lyndon Johnson is a Democrat. He's also, of course, JFK's former vice president. Since I'm not my husband, who is a historical, like, nerd, I I appreciate it, but this is too much for this podcast. And I'm also not Robert Caro, who's wrote, like, a 600-page book on Lyndon Johnson called Master of the Senate. So if you need an audiobook to fall asleep with, trust me, Robert Caro reading to you instant lights out he's a very nice man he lacks a lot of nuance and change in his voice okay the reader's digest version of this story is this the kennedys super excited eh, excited to have lbj as the vice president for jfk's campaign because lyndon johnson had been a senator he had a book about him called master of the senate so he knew a lot of people He was an experienced politician lots of connections and perhaps more importantly lbj is from texas And he grew up poor, and that meant that he could swing Southern and perhaps more poor voters to choose Kennedy, even though Kennedy is a Catholic. And in the South at the time, most people, if they are religious, are conservative Protestants. So there's a lot of people who are more in that evangelical mold, which is not really super uh, interested in the Catholic faith. So LBJ was a really good pick for a vice president. He really allowed them to get a lot of votes. He was incredibly useful for the campaign. But it you have to know that the Kennedys, being who they are, you know, upper crust, Boston-based, you know, New England types, lots of sweaters, and then Lyndon Johnson, who grew up, um, you know, somewhat poor on a farm in the middle of nowhere, Texas, where getting power lines was a big deal. Um, there's not a real natural friendship between these peoples. Um, and this bad blood between RFK and Lyndon Johnson specifically, there had been a lot of bad energy around them, really gets ignited when RFK decides to run for president seeking the nomination. Despite the fact that typically in America, the current president, if they have only served one term, uh, would be running for president. This is kind of a big... You know, I'm just going to say it. This is RFK giving a big, fuck you, LBJ, energy but but it was not a controversial choice in some ways because you have to know that when this election cycle is happening the vietnam war is very unpopular in our country and there are protesters standing outside of the white house saying hey hey lbj how many kids did you kill today in reference to the number of soldiers um injured and killed in the vietnam war LBJ is losing a lot of political steam, like voters aren't excited by him. And a lot of younger voters are very excited about RFK. So it's not that RFK, Bobby Kennedy, you know, didn't have a chance to win. It's just that it's a bold move to take on the say, I want to be nominated, even though the person who is currently in office is from my same party. I think there were a lot of Democrats obviously they didn't live through this that weren't really wanting LBJ to run for office. I don't know that LBJ was super hot on it. I think there's some mixed uh, messages. I think towards the end, he had accepted that he wasn't going to win and shouldn't run. But, you know, the Democratic Party's a li- probably a little torn at this time. And I think RFK sees this power struggle. And because he's totally a Scorpio, he's like, "Ooh, power struggle. Power struggles are an opportunity for me to rise to the highest office in the land and continue this Kennedy legacy because a lot of the stuff we've wanted to implement hasn't happened. Now, this is the wild part of this to me. We're in early June 1968. So it's, it's Gemini season. But two months before this, right, RFK is in another, you know, speaking engagement where he's talking about his presidential campaign and he has to announce live to a crowd that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and killed. Um, and it happens like two months before Bobby Kennedy will be killed. It's it's really weird. Um, I mentioned this in my first episode, but what also is kind of weird is that we see certain signatures repeat again in the Kennedys, and one of them is that Mercury, Mars, Uranus meetup. So two of those three planets, not Mercury and Mars, but either Mercury and Uranus, Mars and Uranus, are forming a connection with one another. And that kind of hap- tends to happen around certain tragic Kennedy events. In his own chart, Bobby Kennedy, RFK, has a Mercury square Uranus um, and a Mercury forming a lesser aspect, a semi-square to Mars and Scorpio. Semi-squares, I don't typically use those. So I will say I think the Mercury square Uranus is a little more important And his assassination that day also follows a really similar signature. Mars and Uranus are in a tight square to one another. Um, And this is a little different because also Pluto is involved in this square as well. It's, It's also happening that all of the Virgo placements on this day, they all happen to be in the eighth house of death. And so I think that there is... Again, that Pluto, I think, is what comes up for me when we have these assassinations, the fact that Pluto is kind of lingering there in the black background because Mars-Uranus we've talked about, right? It's like unexpected and then action, right? Or like Mars can be violence or war um, or conflict. And so I think like the Uranus-Mars, it's like, oh, unexpected conflict, unexpected violence. But Pluto, to me, seems like it's implying that it's a fatal Thing, right like mercury uranus transit it could be that you feel like there's unexpected you know conversations or thoughts that you have or kind of themes around intellectual and then the unexpected which is uranus but to me pluto lingering in these squares being around these squares seems to say like not only is it unexpected not only is it chaotic but it also is lethal um and so i think that Because we don't have any other assassinations that we're going to talk about, it's I would be interested but did not do the work to see if there is maybe a Pluto signature. So outside of the Kennedy signature, which is Mercury, Mars, where do we have Scorpio? Where do we have Virgo? Where are these places coming up? But also, is Pluto a signifier of assassinations? And I think that it could be because around these same times that we're seeing the assassination dates for that Tippecanoe curse, we're also seeing some Saturn-Pluto conjunctions. And it could be that Pluto is the assassination planet. Um, I don't know. I will say another thing I don't know was I debated long and hard, and I think whatever I pick is probably wrong, but I wasn't sure if I should talk about Chappaquiddick or not. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about Chappaquitic, this involves Ted Kennedy. Um, it involves a woman named Mary Jo Kapashny, and basically what happens I'm sorry, I think it's Mary Jo Kapash, but it's an incredibly tragic moment. And what happens is Ted had been at some kind of social function in the evening and had was driving in his car with this woman, Mary Jo. Um, and he loses control of his vehicle on a bridge that does not have, um, like guardrails or anything on the sides of it to keep you from going over. And so he, his car goes off the bridge into this water, into Chappaquiddick, and he swims out of the car and then waited till the next day to report the crash. So unfortunately, this woman, um, drowned inside of a car and probably saw Ted Kennedy swim away from her. And that has to be just one of the scariest and most terrible ways that I can think of uh, leaving this earth and so I struggle with this because it is a tragedy and someone's life was lost but I don't know that this is a tragedy for the Kennedy family like it has never sat with me never really sat nicely with me that Ted Kennedy following this accident was years later quoted as saying that he wondered if quote some awful curse did actually hang over all the Kennedy's Okay, Ted, we get it. To be fair, Ted Kennedy barely survived a plane crash a few years before this incident. um, And that was very scary, I'm sure. And his brothers were both assassinated. But to be honest, if we're talking about Chappaquiddick, I think it's clearly Ted's reckless and disgraceful behavior is what got this family into, you know, spinning around that they might be cursed. Do you think that Ted? Really? I swear, I really don't hate Aquarius men. And I also have a Virgo moon. So I'm really trying to be nice here. But this pissed me off when I was reading about this. Like, Ted, you were mercifully saved from a wrecked plane where other people, including people who worked for you, died. And I get it. You did have to spend six months recuperating in a hospital, which is a pain I have never known. And I understand that you had terrible, grievous injuries. And I'm I'm not a total monster. I remember that a couple of years ago, like Obama era, Yes, that really happened. No, it's not a fever dream. Ted Kennedy had a long and public battle with brain cancer, um, and that was incredibly tragic. But this makes me think of Rosemary Kennedy's that tragic lobotomy because the death of Mary Jo is a completely preventable tragedy. And yet this only happens because some Kennedy man decided that he knew what to do and, like, didn't think twice, didn't ask for a different ride home, didn't say no, didn't stop the lobotomy from happening. And it's these losses, Rosemary and Mary Jo, that remind us that while a curse could so easily be construed as the idea that we are powerless against dark and harmful forces— It's also the reckoning that sometimes we ourselves act in destructive ways, and those destructive ways have the potential to darken and destroy the lives of others, that we can create a curse for ourselves, right? Like, we could be cursed, but maybe our careless actions set off a series of events that just feel like a curse in someone else's life or our own. I mean, think about this it goes all the way back, it goes all the way to the top. If Joseph Kennedy had not you know, had a difficult time as, you know, being an ambassador abroad and then being laughed out of the political world, then he would have run for a president and maybe he would have won. But since he wasn't able to be president, then that meant that he would push all of his male children to be president. And if he hadn't pushed all of his male children, then his oldest child, Joseph Kennedy Jr., might not have died. And then that wouldn't have set off maybe the the events where JFK and RFK both in the process of being and running for president wouldn't have died as well wouldn't have been assassinated that this seeking the presidential idea that they had been raised to put above all else is a curse in its own way, more than some evil, malefic figure lurking in the shadows, you know, deflating tires and pouring sugar into the exhaust and waiting for people, you know, to make one misstep and then, you know, tragedy to strike. I discussed this on last episode, but to me, it's the idea that the curse is so intertwined with the reality that the Kennedys were raised to be incredibly competitive, and that this competition seems to always end in destruction, and that Ted Kennedy, just as his brother's report was before, was put on tremendous pressure to be the political superstar. Okay, this incident, Chappaquiddick, happens a little over a year after RFK was killed, and not even a decade after JFK had been killed. And Ted Kennedy had had to have seen that his three brothers— were they died in some capacity for serving their country. And that has to mess with a person. That has to affect how you go through life. I don't think that any of us could imagine losing siblings in such short order and not want to do something terrible or act out or drink too much and try to drive. Not that it's okay, but I think you can understand that this, a normal person would be probably still reeling from grief. But the Chappaquiddick is a reminder that this curse that the Kennedys have isn't Chappaquiddick at all. It's what Chappaquiddick will represent for Ted Kennedy, because this decision that he makes in July 1969 will haunt him and curse him in some way for the rest of his life. I don't think that Chappaquiddick obviously cost Ted his life, but I think they will have cost him chance of being president ever, because There's no way that this doesn't become a talking point for people who oppose him. And while he will go on to be the Lion of the Senate, I think that having to live with the knowledge that you ended someone's life is probably very difficult. And I'm sure it was difficult for the family when there were no real charges pressed and nothing really came of it. And I think that it's in this way that I'm asking us to think about the curse as That we do things to our own undoing and that those have reverberating consequences through our lives in untold ways that we cannot understand because we're just humans and we cannot see the future. And while we are talking about this curse and unintended consequences of the past, this brings me to that eighth house energy that so, so plagues the Kennedys, right? I've talked about the eighth house previously in lots of episodes. We know it as the house of death, but it's also a house of other people's resources, and the concept of inheritance. Now inheritance could be financial inheritance where you get a windfall from your mysterious uncle, or it could be health issues or legacies that we inherit from our families. The eighth house to me is the knowledge that we are not simply a person existing in a moment in time. We are in fact the product of all people that came before us and all of their experiences and all of their hopes and dreams, whether we want to be or not. And with the full 8th house vibe, I give you the life of John F. Kennedy Jr. And this man has always been a little bit of a doozy for me. One, I find him incredibly attractive, even as a child. Yes, I was too young. No, I don't care. You know, game sees game. It just seems like JFK Jr., even with his family money and connections and intelligence, he just didn't have a chance. He never had a normal life. And I think that there have been other many, 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 many chart of fortune episodes that come to this same sad conclusion for other people, which is fame is destructive. The scrutiny of having lived your entire conscience existence in the public eye damages the human psyche. It creates what I imagine to be a very alienating experience that it feels like those people don't ever have a chance to be their own person or develop a personality and sense of self because You are public and meant to be consumed. You are not meant to exist for your own benefit. JFK Jr. was born on November 25th, 1960. He is a Sagittarius sun, aqua moon, and a Virgo rising. And his life really is from the moment public, right? Just consider what I'm about to tell you. JFK Jr. came into the world. He was born about two and a half weeks after the election day that declared his father president. He was only a few months old when his parents moved into the White House and attended several inaugural balls in mid-January of 1961, and he was not even three years old when his father died. Can you imagine that his third birthday was three days after his father was killed, and that when JFK Jr. leaves this earth, he is only 38 years old? Now, I expected when I pulled up his chart to see beaucoup de 8th house placements. Just all of the things in the 8th house. Now, Aries is his 8th house ruler, but he has no planets there. He does have the prominent Virgo placement like the other Kennedys. We talked about it Virgo rising. He also has a Mercury Uranus square. His Mercury is in Scorpio again Kennedy's signature here and it's forming a very large square so we have a 12 degree orb to his natal Uranus which is in Leo. Leo and Scorpio are both fixed signs so that's a square um this is something I just found really interesting and I don't really have a basis for it but maybe you'll find this interesting too. So his sun sign is Sagittarius cool that is the polarity so the opposite sign of his dad's sun sign which is Gemini and in ancient astrology the sun, more than Saturn, was meant to be signifying our father figure in our life. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And then to add to that, John F. Kennedy Jr. is an Aquarius moon. And Aquarius is the polarity, so the opposite sign, of his mother's sun sign in Leo. JFK Jr. also have his, has his midheaven in Gemini. And to me, that kind of echoes that there's this... Um, legacy that involves his dad right Gemini thats was JFK's uh sun sign there's that tradition also of the Kennedy being in the public eye being involved or adjacent to politics prior to his death JFK Jr. had pursued careers in law and acting but he kind of gained the most amount of notoriety and maybe some longevity as a co-creator of George magazine which was this political lifestyle magazine um Cindy Crawford I think was the first cover and she's dressed up as George Washington and it was supposed to be kind of a you know really smart cool politics publication. In some ways I think those oppositions I just mentioned so in his natal like his big 3 are very evocative for JFK Jr's life and his marriage and how different it is from his parents. I think that JFK Jr. obviously you know he eloped his wedding wasn't um, a really big public event and obviously Jackie and John they were not you know running for president at the time so their wedding was uh not an elopement but it was obviously like a family wedding and friends you know other people but I think that these couples are both forced to be public but JFK, in a really different way, because this is the 90s we're talking about. And so he's living in New York. He's regularly followed and photographed. It's very different than John and Jackie, who have, you know, meetings with world leaders or they go on trips. And so there are very staged and coordinated photo ops. But so many of the photos we have of JFK Jr. as an adult are him just walking around New York, like living his life. And that lack of, um, you know, space between public and private is probably something that really helped his parents and something that he was not afforded. I think also there's a movement of John F. Kennedy, JFK, and Jackie moving from normal citizens, obviously, you know, East Coast elite, into a public life. And that I think JFK is almost seeking the opposite right he has lived his whole life publicly and he would like to have some parts of his life be more private he has a very public business he seems to be fine with that but it's very clear that he wanted his marriage to carolyn Bissett to be very very private and that he could have a more mundane life you know if they ended up having kids that they those kids obviously are not going to grow up in the white house and and not have that kind of surreal childhood that he had but he does carry on his parents' tradition of getting married in Virgo season. John F. Kennedy Jr. and Carolyn Bessette eloped. Um, they I, I don't know if it's fair to say they eloped. They had a really small wedding on September 21st, 1996. And on that day, the moon and Jupiter were forming an inside conjunction to Carolyn Bessette's nat- natal Capricorn sun placement. So before with Jackie, we had Jupiter was, you know, conjunct her Jupiter. And here we have Carolyn Bissett getting Jupiter conjunct her sun. The moon is also there. And to me, these interesting conjunctions really point to the role that these women played in their marriages. For Jupiter, we talked about Jackie having this theme of expansion. And I think that for Carolyn, it's really the concept that the moon, um, you know, being in Capricorn and Jupiter being in Capricorn, I feel strongly like this is the story of someone whose emotionality and like privacy was being from that moment on m- much more scrutinized. They had obviously been dating and there were photos of them, but in marrying JFK Jr. Her life was going to change and that she was now part of this Kennedy legacy, whether that was something she really identified with or not. Um, Galen Bissett was working in high fashion. She was working for Calvin Klein Um, in a really, you know, upper level way. And so I think she was kind of well known in some circles. But to me, it's almost this because one, she's a total Capricorn in that it's like Capricorns are such sleek, sleek, like clean lines, not a lot of fuss people. Her wedding gown is so Capricorn. But I also think this is the story of someone who is moving from private citizen and this is also like Jackie that Jupiter placement of being like oh this is going to expand and change your life and also it being in Capricorn has a seriousness around it that I think that Jupiter in Gemini felt so much more playful and and this does have obviously a really tragic ending if you know anything about JFK Jr. um, you likely know that following this wedding JFK Jr. and Carolyn Bessette Kennedy uh, died on July 16th 1999 On that day, again, we have that Mars-Uranus square. Uranus is in 15 degrees of Aquarius. Mars, 4 degrees of Scorpio. We also have Mercury in 9 degrees of Leo, and that is forming an opposition to Uranus. So we have a lot of, you know, tension here, right? Mars and Uranus being in a square is about the tension between action and the unexpected. There's a certain energy of impulsivity here again. To know part of that why that transit is significant is to know that Jackie Kennedy had worried for years. She had this very um, upsetting thought that her child would die in a plane crash. She specifically she said, "Please don't take lessons. Please don't become a pilot." And JFK Jr. Um, I think in kind of a sad, your like Aquarius way was like, eh, "I'm my own person. I do what I want. Like I've lived a public life. I get to have a pri- I get to have a, a license to fl- become a pilot." But he did weirdly stop taking these lessons after a skiing accident killed his cousin Michael, but he eventually did um, throughout the year get a pilot's license. And when this they took off for this flight that ended tragically, he had only been a pilot for about a year. The autopsy and the flight records show that basically John F. Kennedy Jr. was flying over water at night and he was trying to Uh, get the right descent into Martha's vineyard so they could drop off Carolyn's sister Lauren and when you are trying to descend over the water at night it can be really disorienting and it basically affects your spatial reasoning so you don't know how far you are to the ground because of the way the water looks while you're in a plane and so um it was super disorienting and basically they crashed um into the water and died um and thus the life of JFK Jr. There is one final curse moment, I guess we're using curse still, that I want to talk about, and that happened last year. It happened about a year ago, so it's kind of spooky to me. Um, This was April 2nd, 2020, when Robert Kennedy, so RFK's granddaughter Maeve, and her young son Gideon were killed after a canoeing accident when their boat capsized in the Chesapeake Bay. Again, we're seeing that Mars... Uranus square with Mars in the first degree of Aquarius and Uranus is in five degrees of Taurus. Um, This was a really sad one. There isn't a ton of information as to exactly what happened, but again, to see that Mars Uranus, I don't want to leave people with the idea that somehow if Mars and Uranus are making a connection, which they will do frequently because Mars changes signs quite frequently, Uranus is going to be in Taurus for a couple more years. So it will continue to square all of the other fixed signs. I think, though, that there can be a signature for families in which we keep seeing the same things play out. Um, So that could be part of it as well. But I don't want to leave this episode saying like, oh, if you see Mars and Uranus squaring off, then, you know, better hope you don't die or something so terrible. I don't. Anytime you see Mars and Uranus, I think that it would be good to have an abundance of caution and consider if you really need to do something that's out of the ordinary or incredibly physical because you could end up injured. It could be something where, you know, you want to go skiing that day and it's not fatal, but it does result in you, you know, like hurting your ankle or something and being um, in a tremendous amount of pain. So I'll leave you with these thoughts. Are the Kennedys cursed? Does their large family and their century of being in the spotlight just magnify their personal losses and tragedies and that's why we think they're cursed because there's so many of them that you know when the same percentage of accidents happens to them as happens to the rest of the populace it feels like a curse are curses even real or are we simply being called to work on the past trauma of previous generations that we've inherited and that we ourselves can end whatever perceived curses are in our own lives the curses aren't something like, just through the universe that are malefic, you know, incantations, but also, like, years and years and years of bad patterns that we ourselves don't have to repeat. And most importantly of all, I leave you with the concept. Can the Kennedys just, like, pull a Reagan already and hire a damn astrologer? They might be able to figure some of this stuff out. I mean, Jesus. So whether you are a Jackie or a Marilyn... Or you're like me and you think it's wrong to pit women against each other because, ew, it's 2021. Please remember that everyone and everything has a birth chart, but yours is a chart of fortune. Thank you for listening to Chart of Fortune. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or if you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, let me know by emailing me at chartoffortune at gmail.com or messaging me on my Instagram account, which is Chart of Fortune. I'll be back next week doing what Chart of Fortune is really all about, feeling nostalgic for the early 2000s and what I call pop culture. Until next week, keep your Virgo friends close and your 8th house placements closer. I love you. Bye-bye.